This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, as interest rates continue their upward swing, how many housing developments and pre-sale condos are in jeopardy in Metro Vancouver? And COVID fades and birth tourism comes back to Canadian shores. We look at why our hospitals continue to remain passport mills. Plus, as BC continues the drug decriminalization, why has liberal Washington state gone in the opposite direction, keeping hard drugs illegal and increasing penalties? It's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's focus on the impact rising interest rates are having on our economy, your finances, and yes, our real estate and development industry as well. Now, as you know, the Bank of Canada decided to raise its uh, benchmark interest rate to 4.75% on Wednesday. Uh, That move by the bank takes the bank's benchmark to its highest level since 2001. Now, yesterday, a friend of mine sent me a text regarding a Squamish development called Parkside Homes. The four-bedroom homes are being built and marketed by Boza Development. Now, here's the kicker. In their marketing material, Boza says they'll uh, pay half the buyer mortgage for a whole year. So the first year, I'm guessing. Clearly a sign of the times when it comes to rapidly escalating rates. Uh, Last week, we learned, uh, it was reported in the Richmond News, that a condo development in Minru Square was halted and the developer, Tinned Properties, returned the 20% deposit to pre-sale buyers. Uh, The newspaper reported the developer blamed rising interest rates. Well, last night on the news hour, we learned a, a major Vancouver developer, Anthem Properties, has requested a delay in paying the $10 million it owes for the city and community amenity contributions. The site we're talking about is the West Georgia Street site um, uh, near Bidwell, which was once the former Chevron station. Now, the developer has paid over $15 million. They're just asking for the remaining $10 million to be delayed and t- tied to the last stage of the building permit. Now, the president of Anthem, uh, Eric Carlson, said the pandemic, the war in Ukraine, uh, supply chain disruption, and inflation all created hurdles for many projects uh, in the city of Vancouver to proceed. Here's a portion of the story from last night's news hour. Major developer Anthem Properties requesting a delay in paying $10 million to Vancouver City Hall for community services and amenities. We're all ready to go, and then the Ukraine war came, and that, you know, created supply chain disruption and inflation. And it's given everything that we've been through, we just asked to see if we could defer the final installment of the CAC of 10 million bucks until, uh, you know, for 10 months or something like that. Real estate experts say this could have a significant impact on the future of development, blaming high interest rates and construction costs. This is the site in question. It used to be a Chevron gas station located on West Georgia and Bidwell Street. Which other developers, which other sets of developers are going to be facing these kind of challenges? Anthem, not the first developer adapting to rising interest rates. The creditor protection of Coromandel, I think, really touches upon, I think, the changing development environment, that uh, the development environment that we were even just two years ago has changed significantly. The director of Simon Fraser University's city program, Andy Yan, says the situation raises an important public policy question. It's, it's interesting to note that uh, would these types of courtesies be passed on to a homeowner or a renter uh, if they were facing uh, similar financial difficulties. 
As for Anthem's request, Vancouver City Council will be considering it next week. If uh, some flexibility can be provided on timelines, that's one consideration. Experts urging the public to take note. Nagar Moshahedi, Global News. Uh, that was last night's newscast. Now, there was another person involved in that story, which we took out because we have him as a guest now to talk a little bit about this issue. Michael Geller is president of the Geller Group. He's an architect, planner, and a real estate consultant. Good afternoon, Michael. Good afternoon, Jazz. So how worried should we be when uh, large developers like Anthem are, are saying, you know, let's uh, put the brakes on this. We will pay you for uh, the $10 million that we owe you. We're just saying give us a bit of time. Uh, you have uh, developers like Tin Properties in Richmond also saying, uh, look, uh, we're returning the pre-sale uh, dollars that you put down, the deposit you put down, simply because the math doesn't work. How concerned should we be when this is happening in the market? Well, I'd be more concerned about the latter situation where a developer pre-sold units uh, was ready to get going, but because of rising interest rates and construction costs, is essentially aborting a project. That is of concern to me, and I think should be concerned to others. The Anthem situation was somewhat unique to the extent they agreed to pay a very, very substantial amount of money to the city to get a few extra floors on a building, 26 million dollars they paid 15 and basically they haven't started construction and so they were really looking at a deferral but they were willing to pay interest on the deferral and in fact i calculated that interest would be around nine percent so i'm not too concerned about anthem but i did make the comment last night on global that there's no doubt that many other developers are facing some real challenges because two, three years ago when these projects were approved and developers agreed to make substantial payments to the municipalities in return for approvals, things look much rosier than they do now. And it's a combination of interest rate increases and substantial increases in construction costs. So what does this mean about for us if, if we talk about hitting our housing targets? Uh, you know, the Minister of Housing uh, had a, a naughty list and wants uh, communities to build more, but ultimately you can't do that without the private sector. What does this mean when, as you say, the Richmond project in this case, they walked away from it temporarily, I'm assuming, uh, and handed the deposit back. But what does this mean in regards to just the ability to build housing in this region for the next you know, 18 months to two years? Well, I think there's a combination of things that will impede how many homes can be built. One is, as you point out, the interest rates and construction costs. Another thing that you and I have talked about is just simply the availability of construction trades and materials to build the the number of homes. So we haven't actually seen what the housing targets are going to be for each municipality, but many of the people I talk to believe that they will be, you know, relatively modest compared to what they might be just to take into account these other factors. Mm -hmm. Um, I I don't want to sound cold about this, but is this a a longer term, a good thing in regards to it? It's a hard reset for the market. I know somebody's probably struggling to deal with a a mortgage or renegotiating their mortgage probably doesn't want me saying this. Uh, And developers who have had property carrying debt are struggling as well. But regards to the increases that we've seen over the last few years, not just here, but Toronto as well, it it wasn't this inevitable to a certain degree in, in regards to the pricing we're seeing in this country. And inevitably, we 
did need a hard reset when it comes to our real estate and development industry. Well, I don't think you're being cold. I think you're being realistic. I mean, those of us who invest in the stock market get to see in a much more vivid way that what goes up often comes down. I mean, it is interesting, Jazz, you mentioned this development in Squamish. I did take a a look at this and actually spoke to the sales manager. I mean, on one hand, one might assume, oh, my goodness, they're offering to pay the mortgage for the first year. They must be in dire straits. And then I took a detailed look at the project and realized these are – these are townhouses in Squamish selling for, are you ready, mm-hmm. $1.3 $1. million. Wow. I mean, three years ago, these similar townhouses, similar units were selling $700,000. So in other words, there have been, I mean, Squamish, as many of your listeners know, has become an increasingly attractive place to live for many reasons. One of those reasons was because it was so much more affordable than Metro Vancouver. But now we're, we're, I mean, this, I calculated it for those people who like to measure the cost of housing at a price per square foot. It's around $900 a square foot. I mean, it wasn't that long ago I sold the Bayshore development for $350 a foot. Wow. <laughs> so these are substantial prices. So I don't think that Squamish case study necessarily implies that things are really in dire straits. Basically, what the developer is doing there is offering the equivalent of about a $35,000 discount on that $1.3 million price. Now, it may well be well worth taking. I know the developments, very nice developments, good builder and so forth. But it isn't, I don't think it's a case that the developer is getting desperate. But the Richmond case that you mentioned, that is a case where the developer just simply is not able to proceed. And they can't proceed because even though they sold the homes for the prices they wanted, mm-hmm. it's going to cost them so much more to build the homes. Yeah. And the bank won't lend them the money. It's concerning, though, when you say, hear about condos of, uh, in Squamish going from, from 700000 to $1.3 million. Although I would say that's a very good lo- location where they are selling them, that's for sure. Um, the next year, 18 months, what does it look like for you in regards to interest rates, in regards to everything we've talked about, uh, supply chain, labor, um, access to capital, dollars, all of that? What does the next 18 months look like to you for the real estate industry here in Metro Vancouver? Well, I won't pretend that I know, but what I do do is I read what the governor and the deputy governor of the Bank of Canada what they are saying, and basically what they are saying is that interest rates are going to stay pretty much where they are, and they could possibly go a little bit higher, and that we will not see any dramatic reductions in interest rates until perhaps late 2024. Now, this is a different message that many of us uh, were, were hoping for three or four months ago when we thought, the January increase was the peak, mm-hmm. and uh, now we discovered, as you pointed out, we're not at the peak, and we may still say more. Now, the interesting thing, Jazz, is what I read from the Bank of Canada is one of the reasons they're increasing the interest rates is because so many people were starting to return to the housing market. 
the people actually were out there buying. Now, you and I don't know that, but that was certainly the, their analysis, and it's based on statistics they get from CMHC. Well, it, it's going to be very interesting and a very rough road ahead for a lot of folks uh, as well. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for your time. It's always a pleasure. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, joining me now is our contributor, Jerry Mayer Judson. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, something free, hopefully. <laughs> yes, I'm, gonna, I'm coming in here. There's doom and gloom about economic uncertainty and the price of housing and uh, the price of maybe even a Friday night in the lower mainland. I was trying to find things that are low cost and, and or free to do in the summer, right, around uh-huh. Metro Van. And some of the lists are kind of funny because they're like, you could go for a walk. You could go for a hike. And I'm like, yes, nature is free. But what about something actually cool and cultural and interesting? So I did find something really great. I spoke to Jasmine Bradley. She's the director of strategic communications and branding for the Vancouver Art Gallery about their brand new program, Free First Friday Nights. Through this um, exciting new partnership with BMO, the Vancouver Art Gallery has been able to expand community access to our gallery in a new and exciting way that essentially opens up the doors the first Friday of every month from 4 to 8. And uh, we welcome everybody to come in and enjoy our exhibitions and programming for free. The response has been fantastic. Our first night, we had more than 3,000 people come through the gallery between 4 and 8 o'clock that night. And we actually hit capacity for our building, which is one of the reasons why we're looking forward to having a new building so we can um, increase that capacity. We are working towards breaking ground later this fall on a project that has been dreamed about and um, for many, many years, and we're really excited to be able to be moving forward with this this new building. Um, there's a lot of positive momentum right now. It will mean that we can double our exhibition space. We can um, incorporate more of the Coast Salish worldview into the actual exterior of the building um, through an incredible Indigenous weave that we're working with some Coast Salish artists on. So it's really exciting to be able to look to the future, to look at how we can expand access to the community, to art. Art is something that's important in all of our lives. And, oh yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I left a show uh, on uh, a Friday evening, and I think it was May 5th, would have been the first Friday of May, mm-hmm. in regards to um, uh, what uh, Jasmine was saying there. And after the show, I walked by the art gallery there, and, and there was a lineup, 
like around the building. So I was wondering what it was, wow. and that was probably it. Exactly. And that was the that was just the first one, and that was uh, they got a really good ad campaign. I keep seeing these posters and flyers even for for it. So it was it's it's just the, the response is wild. That was 3,000 people on night one. Uh, and uh, and then in the, the next one, they had 4,000 people. So this thing just keeps snowballing in, 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 in the best kind of way. And uh, I asked Jasmine as well to hook me up with all of the details about the next one. And she had this to say. July 7th will be our next Free First Friday night. Um, we expect this again to be another very busy evening. So we encourage people to go online and reserve your spot. And if you're unable to come for whatever reason, just go back online and cancel that um, reservation so that we can ensure your spot's used by somebody else. Um, we will have a new exhibition that will be um, opened by that time as well, which is um, Parviz Tanavoli, Poets, Locks, and Cages. So this is a Vancouver-based Iranian artist, um, and it's his first major exhibition, um, and we're really excited about that. So come on down. I'm curious. Uh, Jasmine's talking a little bit about um, what's going to be there. Um, uh, what kind of things can you see now uh, in regards to the art gallery? Yeah, now there is a very cool, I'm, oh, I don't recall the full name of the exhibition, but it does have to do with fashion uh-huh. and the materials that uh, designers use for, yeah, to make fashion. There is like a puffer room, you know, those puffer jackets that yes. you see on everybody. Yeah. Uh, and there's a focus as well. There's a conversation to be had on upcycling and reusing materials then in in fashion. Oh, that is great. I mean, we there's so much conversation these days about fast fashion. Oh yeah. And the impact it has on the environment and in and, and, and a consumption based society. It's 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 not just uh, you know go, saying goodbye to fossil fuels. It's also like the old days where you you had uh, a, a piece of garment, you repaired it or a pair of shoes. You didn't just throw them away. You, exactly. You repaired them. Probably more of our parents' generation, my parents' generation than mm-hmm. anything else. But still, or they they were high enough in quality where you could repair them, and they That's didn't just rip too. apart. You know, yeah. somewhere else. Exactly. So this is going on for the whole summer. Yes, going on for the whole summer. And the next one, like Jasmine said, July the 7th. I mean, I'm going to, you're going to see me there for sure. I'm very excited to check it out. We'll leave early or leave during the show. Because I tell you, when I walked by there at about 6.15, it was, there's a lineup around uh, the art gallery. So those folks are going to be waiting for a while. So I think she was saying that uh, 4,000. 4,000 The the second time. And the fact that they're uh, eventually going to build the new one. And it is a beautiful looking model. Oh yeah, I looked right? at it today. It's it isn't it is art in and of itself. It's it's gorgeous. Yes, exactly. And and it's going to be such a, a a landmark for the city. It's iconic building, which we could use more of in Vancouver. So it's going to be yeah. brilliant. Yeah, a little bit more uh, diversity from the, as lovely as steel and glass are. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be visually really nice. That is definitely something definitely something we could use uh, in the downtown <laughs> core. Jerry, thank you. Thank you, Jazz. Good to have you on board too. Thank you. I'm psyched to be here. I did it. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Now, if you've been listening to this program or many others here at CKNW, we spent a significant amount of time talking about uh, decriminalization. We've also talked uh, about uh, many communities in British Columbia, from Kamloops to Campbell River, uh, either implementing or debating uh, the issue of decriminalization, uh, but also uh, bringing in potential bylaws that would restrict drug use uh, in parks, uh, in uh, on beaches, or in the downtown area. Because 
because of decriminalization uh, uh, rules that were brought in here in British Columbia. Now, of course, our approach to safe supply and decriminalization, many of you said, is um, in contrast to what you see uh, in Alberta, where the focus uh, is not on decriminalization, but they focus on treatment programs, um, uh, you know, largely based on a, a similar system in Portugal, uh, but they have really focused on treatment uh, and not decriminalization. It's a program that uh, their uh, premier has talked about, uh, and even conservative uh, party leader Pierre Polyev has regularly uh, touched upon, uh, even when he visits this program as well. Well, recently our next guest uh, had an article in the Globe and Mail uh, where uh, he informed us that Washington Governor Jay Inslee signed into a law a new policy that keeps most drugs illegal and increases penalties for possession. Now, this is interesting for Washington State, often referred to as a very liberal state, similar in politics to British Columbia, but their approach is very different compared to, let's say, uh, British Columbia or even uh, the state south of them, uh, Oregon. Joining me now to talk about the issue uh, is Nathan Vanderclip. He's an international correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief with the Globe and Mail. Nathan, welcome. Uh, Hello. Uh, Lots to talk about here. Uh, Any sense of why uh, Governor Jay Inslee in Washington last month decided to sign into law sort of a, not a conservative view uh, or approach to this issue, but certainly very different from, let's say, Oregon or British Columbia? Right. Uh, I I mean, there's there's a couple of reasons. One is that their hand was sort of forced. There was a Supreme Court decision in the United States that basically knocked out their entire possession law in the state of Washington. Um, And so they had a choice. Either they needed a new law by July 1st of this year or their entire possession law was going to disappear, which would have effectively meant the full legalization of all forms of narcotic possession. Um, so, they, you know, they, 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 they negotiated this. There was an, an interim law that created a misdemeanor offense for possession. Um, and, and then they negotiated for a couple of years, and they came down to a special session earlier this year, yeah. which ultimately led to them creating this new law, which makes possession a gross misdemeanor, which is a slightly, uh, comes with slightly larger penalties than a misdemeanor. But I think the, uh, you know, that's, that's sort of the technical reason. But I, I think the real reason is um, they were negotiating this new law in the midst of everything that took place in the pandemic. Um, and throughout the uh, Western seaboard, the Pacific seaboard of North America, like in many places, there were rises in homelessness, there were rises in uh, criminal activity, there was rises in violence and, and, and all sorts of negative indicators. Um, and, and I think those just created an atmosphere uh, in, in which it just wasn't deemed to be politically tenable to move forward with something like decriminalization in Washington state. Um, now, you know, the, how that system runs is different from how British Columbia or Canada runs. Now, I'm based on your article, the city councilors and mayor in Seattle think differently. Right. And so this was interesting because um, because they went with a gross misdemeanor offense, that is something that is prosecuted at lower levels in their court system, at, in, in municipal and county levels. Um, and so the city of Seattle went ahead to try to create effectively a mirroring legislation uh, to, to bring in place the same, uh, the same penalties and the same sorts of things into uh, their local city code, uh, which would, of course, govern the way the city prosecutor can operate. Um, and that was turned down. And it was, it was interesting to see because... Um, it was uh, a city council meeting that took place this week. It was raucous. Many of the speakers were interrupted. There was lots of yelling and there was lots of shouting. Um, and it ended up becoming a bit of a nail biter. Um, coming into the meeting, uh, everybody expected uh, this measure to pass by a 5-4 vote. 
And then partway through the meeting, one of the city councilors actually said, listen, I just can't do this. And he switched his vote. Um, and so they went against it. So it's it's really, I think, uh, a, a window into uh, the degree to which um, these um, sort of battles between decriminalization and recriminalization really stand on a knife's edge in a lot of jurisdictions. So now in the case of Washington State, then Seattle is a bit of an island compared to the rest of the state. Yeah, I think it's probably going to be messy. I mean, the police uh, can still uh, arrest people. Um, the county, King County in Seattle, can still prosecute people if they choose to do so. Um, but the city of Seattle itself won't be prosecuting them. So it, it, at the moment, there's a bit of a jurisdictional mess there. Um, you mentioned the issue of the western seaboard. This is an ongoing issue. I mean, we, people have talked about uh, liberal San Francisco and, and the doom loop down there, Los Angeles and its problems. This is just a, every major city seems to be going through this issue, has, isn't it? Yeah, and I think this is something that, that people, I mean, I, I think there's often a lot of anger at local politicians for doing enough. And, you know, but clearly it is local poli- it falls to local politicians to come up with solutions and local communities to come up with solutions. But I think it is also worth keeping in mind that many of the problems that we see uh, in Vancouver, many of the issues and challenges we see in Vancouver are shared issues. And if you look at downtowns, uh, you know, in, uh, in Oregon, in Washington, in California, uh, there are many parts of those downtowns that don't look terribly different from what we see in Vancouver. And an Oregon system is probably closer to ours here in British Columbia then. The decriminalization system, yes, yeah. And so basically, um, there's, there's came about in an odd way. It came about through a ballot initiative. So basically, it went to a ballot. The voters said yes to decriminalization. And as a result, decriminalization was put into place. Uh, the idea was that they would decriminalize possession, um, but that uh, they would do that in concert with taking a whole bunch of their marijuana tax revenues and putting those into uh, treatment programs and the like. The problem was the decriminalization, the, the, the lack of consequences or the, 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 the removal of punishments um, happened very quickly, and it took a while for the money to start flowing and for the treatment programs to start building built up. Uh, so you had decriminalization that, that came into uh, a situation where there's a real gap in some of those services. It, 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 you can tell how um, jurisdictions are struggling with this issue. We had uh, uh, Mario Canseco from Research Co. on this program uh, earlier this week, and he said that you know generally British Columbia and certainly the polling that he's done are supportive of safe supply, um, or, or supportive of treatment centers, but then, and, and the numbers are in the 50 and 60% range, if not higher, but once you get to decriminalization, then the number is only 40%, really speaks to, I think, how the public here in British Columbia is struggling with this issue. Right. And, and I think, you know, part of the problem is, is that I, I, some of the arguments that are made for decriminalization don't square particularly well with the facts. In Oregon, for example, mm-hmm. one of the arguments was that it, uh, by, by decriminalizing possession, simple possession of narcotics, it would create a greater racial equity in terms of arrest rates. But what advocates never really put out there was that, you know, when it came to arrests for simple possession of narcotics, those had virtually disappeared anyways. Police had actually stopped largely enforcing those rules. So, yes, it has reduced... Uh, the number of arrests of um, different minority groups in, in, in Oregon, um, but, you know, from a very, very low number. And, and I think what those who are advocating for some form of continued criminalization are saying is not that their intent is to throw people in jail for getting busted with a few grams of something on them, um, 
but that you know when when there are people who are struggling with addiction um the the possibility the 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 the, the levers of the criminal justice system can be an effective way to put people into treatment that's controversial um i think there, there are lots of care providers for example who will say one of the chief obstacles to people um, confronting addiction um, is, is is to go into places where they might have to acknowledge that and potentially face consequences. So th- th- these are these are these are sort of there's a great deal of controversy on both sides of this. Um, but but the argument I think that that we've seen, particularly on the West Coast, in terms of those who favor some form of continued uh, criminal penalties, is not so much that it that it leads to jail, but that it leads to treatment. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Nathan Vanderclip, international correspondent with uh, the Globe and Mail. We were talking about Washington State uh, enacting new laws uh, when it comes to hard drugs. Uh, we're going to uh, change uh, topics uh, just for a moment uh, because about uh, about 15 minutes before we went to air, we learned that David Johnston resigns as special rapporteur on foreign interference. Of course, Mr. Johnston was uh, asked by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau way back in March to look into allegations that China... Um, meddled in our past two elections. He stepped down today. Um, uh, many uh, critics, uh, including the opposition, said that he was unfit for the job because of his close relationship or personal connections uh, to uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, Mr. Johnson said that uh, uh, because of the polarizing nation, uh, nature of the conversation over the last month, it's best that he uh, stepped down. Now, Nathan, um, we had obviously <laughs> booked you for the show to talk about your uh, latest story in regards to Washington State. But uh, when, a, when an individual has worked eight years uh, in China, I am not going to give up the opportunity to ask a few questions on this. Your thoughts on uh, a late Friday afternoon resignation in Ottawa? Well, in retrospect, I, I think, you know, we, we can say that sort of the writing was on the wall beginning last week when the House of Commons passed a motion uh, calling for his resignation. I mean, it, it, that was not a vote of non-confidence in the Liberal government, because, you know, they still have the supply of the NDP, but it was a vote of non-confidence in David Johnston himself. And for someone who whose, uh, you know, position was effectively to be one of the guardians of democracy, it, it, it started to feel awfully anti-democratic for him to continue in that post. But it is kind of it's, it, it, is, it is remarkable to hear you, you call March a long time ago. Um, <laughs> really, it's not that long time ago. Uh, but, you know, a tremendous amount of water has, uh, has, has come into the bridge since then. Yes, absolutely. Um, can we do what we need to do without a public inquiry? Uh, or do you think it's just the very nature, uh, the fact that things have gotten so political and uh, the evidence, or at least some evidence that's been provided and the conversation that's occurred over the last few months, that it, it's inevitably, inevitably we have to have a public inquiry? So I think, I mean, there's been a tremendous amount of rhetoric spilled around this whole issue. And, and I think... If you look for sort of sort of a first principles argument against the tenure of David Johnston, you end up saying that he was too much a representative of the status quo and, and that someone who is um, sort of uh, that deeply representative of the status quo cannot be relied upon to push Canada beyond a status quo, which has, of course, brought all of these problems with foreign interference and the rest. So I, I think the question is, you know, what's, what sort of individual or what sort of process can move Canada uh, beyond that status quo into, into sort of a conversation about, you know, the, the reality of some of the issues that we have, uh, as, as well as, you know, real changes that, that can help to address it. Um, an inquiry is certainly one way to do it. I mean, it's an adversarial process, and, and I think perhaps that's what's needed right now. Does that end up with the kind of 
um, solutions uh, or focus on solutions that we need? Or does it end up being a sort of a stage for more political grandstanding? I I don't know. Um, Johnson himself suggested that it might be better to come up with um, uh, a replacement for him that has the agreement of all the different political parties. But I mean, what are the chances of that happening? Yeah, and especially with, um, you know, election has to be held by 2025. Everything is so polarized. And uh, I would think the liberals uh, wouldn't want uh, to, to call an inquiry and then have it drag on for a year, two years in the midst of uh, an election campaign potentially as well. But there's no doubt. I mean, you look at countries like Australia that, you know, that still rely on heavily on trade with China. They were able to, to make significant changes in regards to their relationship with China, how they respond to China. Uh, in many ways, I think that's still the litmus test. That's the nation we should be looking towards. And even in the UK, I guess, in regards to um, you know, some of the things that they've been looking at as well. I mean, the, the, the examples are around us in regards to how we respond to China. Yeah, they certainly are. Um, and uh, as far as some of the structural ways of doing that, as far as, you know, changing some of the laws in Canada around foreign interference, I mean, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, the ugly reality in some ways about many of the things that we have learned as Canadians about foreign interference in the last few months is that many of them are perfectly legal. Many of them have not resulted in investigations by the RCMP or by uh, the, uh, the overseers of our elections uh, because they are on their face perfectly legal. And, and so that, that's the sort of thing that can only be fixed by changing laws. Um, and so, you know, in, in some ways, I think, you know, you can't find much to disagree with David Johnson when, when he says, well, we really, the, the focus of our conversation should be on looking forward on what to change, on how to do these sorts of things. Um, but, you know, can you really have that conversation if, if you are not sort of creating some sort of proper accounting of what has happened and some proper accountability for what has happened? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Nathan, thank you so much for your time today. Let's revisit uh, our top story today. Uh, we were focusing on the Bank of Canada, of course, uh, deciding to raise uh, its benchmark interest rate to 4.75%. Uh, that rate is now at the highest level since 2000. Uh, and one, I was speaking to Michael Geller, uh, who's a real estate consultant, um, and he was saying, uh, we talked a little bit about uh, a, a project in Squamish, uh, marketed by Boza Development, a four-bedroom uh, townhomes uh, that are marketing themselves, basically saying that if you purchase a property, they'll pay half your mortgage for the first year. Uh, and that's one way to deal with some of the economic anxiety that's out there. We also had a story um, last week that came into the uh, Richmond News. That was uh, um, that was written there. Basically, a project there around Minaru Square. Uh, it was returning the the deposit to all the pre-sale buyers simply because the market had changed so much when uh, it was first marketed. Um, and the, the uh, developer at the time told Richmond News it was due to interest rates. Um, Michael Geller and I talked at the three o'clock hour. Take a listen to some of his comments. So I don't think that Squamish case study necessarily implies that. Things are really in dire straits. Basically, what the developer is doing there is offering the equivalent of about a $35,000 discount on that $1.3 million price. I don't think it's a case that the developer is getting desperate. But the Richmond case that you mentioned, that is a case where the developer just simply is not able to proceed. And they can't proceed because even though they sold the homes for the prices they wanted, it's going to cost them so much more to build the homes. Bank won't lend them the money. 
So lots of turmoil out there um, uh, as well as interest rates have gone up so quickly, and many expect, of course, uh, they will come down eventually, but will that be in six months or a year, year and a half? And if you think of all of those companies that are holding land or perhaps uh, we're going to market a condo project, uh, those plans started two, maybe three years ago. Well, the business plan just got turned upside down. Think of all the British Columbians out there who are also uh, having to renegotiate their mortgages. Tremendous amount of stress on a lot of families as well. Uh, joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the increase in rates and what it means for a lot of uh, developers here uh, in Metro Vancouver is Andy Yan, who is an urban planner and adjunct professor at Simon Fraser uh, University. Andy, thank you for joining us today. Always a pleasure. Uh, how concerned should we be when a large developer like Anthem is saying, uh, slow down here for a moment. Uh, we are going to pay the $10 million. We promise to pay the $10 million, but we'd like a pause. Right. I mean, remember, it's $10 million with interest, that it isn't, uh, it, it isn't a request for a rebate or, a, or, or, or an avoidance to pay it, is that they want to delay this payment. And I think that it's a view into the fact that there are a, a series of multiple players when it comes to building and financing development in Vancouver. Uh, during the three o'clock hour, we talked about this as well, a specific issue when it comes to Anthem. We also talked about uh, a development in Richmond where um, mm-hmm. money was returned uh, uh, at a mineral development uh, and the pre-sales, uh, pre-sale deposits were returned. I saw yesterday on social media uh, where a BOSA property in Squamish uh, mm-hmm. is uh, marketing that they will pay half of your mortgage in your first year if you decide to purchase one of their four-bedroom um, homes mm-hmm. in Squamish. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a, uh, are you worried at all, someone who looks at properties, looks at the broader real estate industry here in Vancouver, that um, we're really in difficult times uh, because of these little, you know, you're seeing examples, all these little anecdotal examples everywhere that we are in mm-hmm. for a real rough ride in the next six months or so? Um, not yet. I mean, you got to remember, the plural of anecdote is not data. And that I think that this I think it gives us an understanding that even within the development the residential development industry in metropolitan Vancouver is that they do hit bumps and that for now I think that this I think just kind of presents the kind of bumpiness that having interest rates that have I think are are have been seen in some time and a system that has been based on interest rates that were I think really low for some time that I think now we're seeing that kind of rebalancing of the system. And I think that we're, we're, we're seeing, I think, the softness in demand for now. And really, the question will be, uh, how does this go into the future, uh, particularly not only in these developments, but then also for the municipal financing, mm-hmm. through which one thinks that they have also kind of built in a set of assumptions um, that this money, uh, whether it be, in this case, a community amenity contribution from Anthem or uh, any of these development fees coming from these respective developers, uh, might flow into municipal coffers and really what, what might happen uh, when they don't. Uh, the core issue here is at the end of the day, we need more housing, all types of housing uh, mm-hmm. in the lower mainland, mm-hmm. especially as we say the missing mm-hmm. middle, like those four bedroom mm-hmm. homes in, in Squamish. Um, mm-hmm. Do you worry that this tell, I mean, at the end of the day, the private developers are going to put the, their mm-hmm. capital where it's most efficient. And if that means sitting on the mm-hmm. sidelines for a little while, they'll do that. Are you worried that our, our speed to build some of these housing and this is going to hit a break on some of that for a year or two as, and as these developers say, you know what, we're just going to sit on the sideline here. It's just too frothy. It's too, too volatile right now. 
Right. I, I mean, it really touches really how housing isn't only about supply, but it's about supply, demand and finance and how they meet up or how they break apart. That really, I think, highlights uh, when housing is built and when it isn't built. And I think that this is really, I think, something to observe uh, in, 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 in really a sense of how I think developers themselves are exposed, uh, not only to the amount of, uh, of, 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 of the end users who uh, attempt to finance or can get finance off of interest rates, but, uh, but the uh, developers themselves also have uh, f- finance uh, questions that they have to answer and to deal with, for which um, sometimes um, to, in, the, in, in some of these environments, it's to, sta- it's to, it's to uh, stand in the sidelines. And I think that that really is going to be, I think, something to observe, um, because I, it's not that interest rates have are likely going to dramatically increase even more, but the interesting thing to watch is actually what happens when interest rates just remain the same. Is this a net positive? And, and I know people who are probably now having to renegotiate their mortgage has had a significant impact on their on their bottom line, so they probably find my question odd. But what I mean by that is mm-hmm. that, that this market and this, the real estate industry overall in Canada has needed a hard reset for a very long time. Low interest rates have just fueled a lot of this. Mm-hmm. We've had a, probably a 20-year mm-hmm. run on regards to pricing in a significant way, um, that this is exactly what the market in Canada in some ways needed for the hard reset, especially Metro Vancouver? Right. I, I think that it's certainly a reckoning. It's the reckoning of how a system uh, changes, uh, especially when you built it around one assumption, aka ultra low interest rates and easy to attain credit. And now having that begin to disappear, and again, being for a prolonged period of time, uh, seeing which players are able to adapt and which developers are able to build uh, housing, I think this is this is really what we're seeing. I, I think what's that line from uh, from from um, from from that great investor is like when the tide pulls out, you really get to see who's naked. And I think that we're, that the tide is pulling out and we're really uh, really seeing uh, who perhaps may be exposed compared to others. I was at a housing symposium last week in, in Maple Ridge and, and there was a, a pretty large-scale developer and we were just mm-hmm. chatting off stage for a little while and he was telling me that he has lots of sort of mid-tier developers willing to package their developments, their projects, willing to sell to somebody with deeper pockets uh, simply because mm-hmm. they're incredibly worried that they're exposed and they'd mm-hmm. rather sell it even at a loss, knowing full well there could even be bigger losses with what they're stuck with. Now, that's again, it's anecdotal, but these are the kind mm-hmm. of things that are happening behind the scenes. I get a little worried when I hear stories like that. <laughs> it, 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 it's when it comes in as data that I think I, I get worried. And yet at the same time, these are just, I think, randomized stories for now that I think ultimately kind of the, the question is when they, when they come back together, like will we have what the conversation will be, say, in three or six months from now, I think is, is, is really, I think, something to tell. But I think for now, uh, we see these odd situations. I think it's important to note that in, the, in this Atham situation, they paid a lot of money for this lot uh, right in front of Stanley Park. So that I think that that brings in a special set of, of strains in towards that kind of financial environment that uh, I think that they, that, that they are reacting to it. And really, I think in looking at what can happen, I think that, uh, I think that that's really where there is now this reckoning when interest rates uh, may not necessarily go higher, but neither will they necessarily fall to where they were, say, certainly two, two years ago, that I think that really we are going to have this reckoning as we speak. Andy, as always, thank you for your time. Oh, it's a pleasure, Jess. 
At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Well, Simlith Brar is a doctor at Calgary's Foothills Medical Center. Like many doctors, she has noticed a spike in the number of birth tourists arriving out west. But because the data isn't routinely collected by hospitals, it's been impossible to understand the real scope of the issue. Now, we certainly know how pronounced the situation had uh, become in Metro Vancouver and communities like Richmond, Vancouver, Surrey, and Burnaby, especially pre-COVID. Well, last year, Dr. Brar was part of a research team that conducted the country's first in-depth study on birth tourism in Alberta. And this year, for the first time, the Society of Obstetrics, sorry, Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada is forming a working group to study its impact countrywide. Uh, Dr. Brar, as I said, is is based at Calgary's Foothills Medical Center and is also as a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Calgary. Dr. Brar, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. What motivated this study on your part and your colleagues' part? So we had noticed um, in Calgary's zone over the last 10 or so years uh, and a little bit longer that uh, the numbers of people that were um, arriving in Calgary with no... Um, fixed address and no Alberta health care uh, and just really solely to give birth and go home was increasing. Uh, and we didn't really have a lot of specific information about who was coming and why and no real organization around um, the process because it was, it's very difficult and confusing, I think, for care providers when these patients come in. So we elected to um, create a process and start doing some investigation and get some uh, information. And what did your uh, study uh, ultimately come up with? So what it has ultimately um, come up with is that certainly there is an impact of birth tourism on the healthcare system that is here in Calgary. And I think that is, um, we were able to sort of find some discrete numbers, which is different um, than uh, articles, reports written before where there was no discrete data. So there is definitely a financial uh, impact. We also have found out that there is a resource impact. And I think that was another piece that led us to look at this to begin with. You know, we are already a very strapped healthcare system. We hadn't, you know, you can speak to any healthcare provider. We will tell you that uh, for quite some time. And, you know, the pandemic in the last few years has made it worse. So we knew that there was a resource impact, which was confirmed with this study. We also were able to better understand this population. So I think understanding that birth tourist is not one umbrella, right? Mm -hmm. And so understanding that there are nuances within this population and that not everybody that comes here without Alberta health care falls under that definition of a birth tourist. So uh, in regards to those that are coming, um, do you know why this is being caused? Is it a question of just this is post-COVID now and we're returning back to pre-COVID norms, is more information now available to some of these individuals? 
So I think the numbers that we're seeing now, um, which are not reflected in the paper, but the numbers that we're seeing now are probably just a return back to what we would call normal life, right? Post-COVID and everybody um, kind of pursuing their interests as they did before. Uh, Pre-COVID, most of the women who were coming here particularly uh, had family or friends here. Uh, Some wanted to just visit Bounce area. Uh, And the vast majority had said the reason we are coming to Canada, why we have picked Canada, is because we want Canadian citizenship. Uh, And those that are coming, and maybe be a little different in regards to demographics for Alberta compared to British Columbia, uh, here in Vancouver pre-COVID, it wasn't just limited to China, but there was a significant amount of birth tourism coming from China. How, How is it in Alberta? So we have, um, in our research project, we have a little table that goes through um, all of the the major um, countries that people came from. Uh, in our zone, the most, um, the highest population was from Nigeria, and then shortly followed after by um, people from the Middle East, China, India. Um, so I think probably very similar to other parts of, of Canada. Um, when uh, tourists do come to Canada... What are their health needs prior to uh, arriving at the hospital? I guess there would be a system set up to take care of them. So in terms of their health needs prior to coming, what we have noticed is that um, there is a lack of awareness of the potential risk inherent to pregnancy and also a lack of awareness of the potential risk of traveling in pregnancy and particularly towards the end of pregnancy. Um, So you know, many of these women, most of these women had extensive care at home um, where they lived. And sometimes, sometimes they come with prenatal records, sometimes they don't. But there's sort of this kind of obliviousness to what the implication is to travel later in pregnancy. And many women travel late in pregnancy because they don't want to incur the fees of having to stay for long periods of time. Um, And there's no real system then uh, to sort of capture these women as they arrive. Right? So there's no way at the airport to say, oh, I see you need health care. This is where we're going to direct you. And we do know that you know, access to care and where to go can be convoluted even for Canadians. Right? It's hard to find a family doctor. Um, you know, people, our emergency rooms are over, overloaded. So many times women come and they are you know, roaming through the city trying to find out where to go to access care, which results in an, an inadvertent additional delay. Uh, how many people did you study roughly? So in this study, there was 102 people, which didn't reflect the entire population of people that passed through our central triage during that period of time. But this was the 102 that we had the most cohesive data on. And uh, any idea what the cost was to the, the Alberta public system? So the, we've got, we, we sort of divided the cost in terms of unpaid AHS invoices um, with no payments and then unpaid AHS invoices that are partially paid. Um, and then we divided the physician cost separate. So we do have, um, I think it was totaling over, I'm just going to do a quick count here. I think we were about 500000 about half a million for unpaid AHS invoices with no payments. And then just, just under that for um, uh, invoices that were partially paid. So 500000 in regards to just people coming or having their children and not paying the system. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, and I think an interesting piece to, and that's a small number, right? Over a small period of time, Calgary is not a massive city. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are only the people that we could capture because there's always people <laughs> that, that sort of evade um, the system and, and we're not always able to capture them. But w- one thing that was really highlighted to us is that it's not just about the number and the money. And I think we're having some of these harder conversations now in terms of looking at how do you quantify resource allocation, right? So we have this cost, this sort of number of money that is owed to AHS, but it doesn't reflect the labor use, right? So that nurse was diverted. Um, A patient may have been diverted from that bed because somebody was in that bed. The cost to the system of diverting that person uh, if that was required. The, The cost of limited obstetrical and anesthesia, availability, right? Yeah. And so those, you know, that's, that's a really interesting piece that I think we're starting to notice more now. You know, I, I think, and this is important to distinguish, I certainly, you know, I think we have to be cautious in our discussion here. In this mm-hmm. particular discussion, we're talking about people who come from overseas, all, all parts of the world. But we do have a similar question now that we're facing as we look at, you know, pay for service even within Canada. So even Canadian residents, right? It's not just about the payment. We have limited resources. So how do we then allocate that equally and fairly and making, you know, making sure that our disadvantaged population isn't becoming more disadvantaged because they cannot pay for those resources? It's uh, a really tough question. Yeah, it is. And, and some nations have taken, have, have had the same sort of um, rules and regulations and, and philosophy of Canada, which is the Latin term, just soli, of the soil, that if you're born here, you get automatic Canadian citizenship. Yeah. Many have said that we should perhaps walk that back. Uh, I think Australia is a nation uh, some have pointed to in regards to following their directions. Others have said, you know, these people come on a tourist visa in many cases, not all cases, many cases, that the very idea of having a child in Canada on a tourist visa means they aren't living up to the spirit of the visa. Then we should make that birth or that child shouldn't be given automatic Canadian citizenship uh, because the the mother has arrived on a on a uh, a tourist visa, and that be maybe one way to get around the issue. Um, I, I guess this is a broader national conversation ultimately, because what you're seeing is interesting uh, in regards to Alberta's context. BC is very similar as well. Ontario seeing it. The U.S. and many states have seen it as well. This is an ongoing issue, I guess, that we 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 have to find a solution somehow to the the core issue. This is an ongoing issue, and and I think what we have shown is that it's not getting better on its own, right? And I think, you know, what we were all afraid of um, as healthcare workers, knowing how close we were to operating on the edge of a system that was, you know, quite fractured, is you put additional strain on it. Um, It doesn't require much to have it break completely, which I think is what we've seen over the last few years. The point of the tourist visa is really interesting. In our data, we saw that everybody had come in (laughs) via tourist visa. Um, And, you know, I think, we, as, as Canadians, we all would recognize that a fundamental Canadian value is that, hey, we, you know, we're kind, we're nice. If we could provide service and take care of everybody, I think many of us would. But um, resource allocation is a real issue. It's a real issue. And we are certainly struggling with it now. And these are, like you said, really tough discussions. But what we have learned is we need to start having them because this is not getting, it's not going away. Dr. Brar, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Enjoyed our conversation. Look forward to chatting with you in the future. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.